Spoken Word, half an hour of poetry and performance, your connection to Melbourne's grassroots poetry scene, the voice of those of us who have nothing but our voices. Good morning. This is the 3CR Spoken Word Program. My name is Di Cousins and today I'm interviewing Robert DiNapoli about his new book, Reading Old English Wisdom, The Fetters in the Frost. Uh, Thank you for coming in, Bob. You're very welcome. It's a pleasure to be here. Great. Now, you have uh, been studying and teaching uh, Old English literature for how long? Ooh, studying since 1981 when I first encountered it. And it set me off on this ruinous career course that I have followed since. Um, but I've been teaching it formally since about 1992 in Manchester, oh, okay. in England, and uh, on and off, uh, very much part-time gigs here, there, and everywhere, and sometimes none for substantial stretches. So I've, I've been quite part-time. Yes. Well, that perhaps has given you time to do some research. It's often an advantage of being outside the university system. Mm-hmm. Now, the the fetters in the frost is um, uh, comes after your other book on Beowulf, the Far Light, which came out five years ago, mm. and uh, you translated from the Old English and you wrote an extensive commentary on on Beowulf. Mm-hmm. Um, now, th- tell me, this is this title of this book is reading Old English wisdom, in a very short mm-hmm. form. What kind of ideas would you say are encompassed in in the wisdom tradition of Old English literature? Okay, that's a large question. I'll try to be as brief as I can. The wisdom tradition basically is a category that was invented by modern scholars. I don't think any of the poets in the 900s or the thousands who wrote any of the poems in this book were thinking that they were working in a specific wisdom tradition. But scholars have recognized uh, for some time now, largely on the back of biblical scholarship, uh, that there is a wisdom tradition that's recognized in Judaism and in Christianity. And this will involve biblical books like Job and the Psalms. There's a book called Wisdom that involves largely proverbs, sayings about the meaning of life, the universe, and everything that are not quite fully formed theological propositions. They're more existential, kind of life wisdom that cultures accumulate over the years as they rattle on through time that got collected and codified in biblical tradition in written text. And that written text ultimately you know, gets translated into ancient Greek, then into Latin, and then ultimately arrives in England with the missionaries in 597, where it's available for literate Anglo-Saxons to model their own writings on, and some did. And so the primary influence of the old English wisdom tradition appears to be the biblical wisdom tradition. Right, okay. So remember where we are in terms of the period of time. So we're Mm -hmm. talking about 
the five to six hundreds, are we? Uh, originally, it's in well, five nine seven is when the Anglo-Saxons get uh, begin to be converted to Christianity. Right. Uh, a mission is sent from Rome uh, to rescue them from their heathen darkness. They had arrived in England a century and more before with the collapse of the Roman Empire. They basically took over the Roman province of Britannia and kind of ruthlessly displaced the uh, indigenous inhabitants at the time. Once they got converted, though, A, they took to it pretty powerfully, and they made good use of the resources that the monks brought with them when they came, among which were the monastery, and with the monastery, the scriptorium which meant now their literature, which previously they could only, they had to remember in written form, usually poetry. Uh, they began then in a Christian mode to write down. And that's why we've got the text that we can study now. So originally the wisdom poems might have existed as an oral tradition, perhaps like the Homeric epics? Well, maybe? that's the $64,000 question. Scholars differ strongly on this. Common trends in formal scholarship, and as you've already suggested, I am not a formal scholar, but the um, conventional trends tend to look at the Latin background and at the textual background, the thing, all the things that the monks brought with them, and tend to discount the influence of native tradition because it left no physical remains. It was all oral literature. Now, we can tell from the way the poets talk about poetry, that that still had a persistent presence in the Anglo-Saxon literary imagination, and it's it's not absent. It's just silent in in one sense. But you can read its influence on what people wrote in all kinds of ways that I, I won't start itemizing now. Yeah, yeah, now. We'll, we will get to them. Yeah. So just to get the context right, mm -hmm. in... Um, the, the Romans left Britain in about 300 and something? Uh, f 410 is the 410, official date. Okay. There's, there's a letter about it now. Okay. And then um, the missionaries came in uh, 100 years later? Just about five, well, uh, nearly two centuries later. 597 is when they so arrived. So two, two yeah. centuries later. And then the pagan traditions were displaced by Christianity uh, on basically a nationwide scale. But somehow or other, um, there was some dialogue between the pagan traditions and the monks in the scriptoriums in the monasteries, and miraculously, we have these materials. Miraculously is the word. If, if you read the church's formal pronouncements, the homilies and, and other letters and other things that were written by monks, bishops, about the pagan past, they don't want to know it. Yes. Uh, it's pretty much done, dusted, and over with. Um, take it out to the nature strip and don't go back there. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, anyone with a taste for poetry in that culture could not shut, shut it down so utterly, so quickly. And so through the medium of poetry, as you say, a lot of it, un perhaps unintentionally, uh, gets preserved. Yes. Uh, although it's a tricky task to read it because it involves indirect evidence, you know, subtle displacements yes. now, of Christian um, sentiment. Yeah. You have uh, you, you had um, a wonderful launch at the Alderman Hotel in Ligon Street um, a few weeks ago. And one of the things that you said that really 
resonated with me was that in trying to discern the sensibility of the pagan poets, uh, it is a bit of a similar task to looking at the strange gravitational pull of an invisible celestial object on a visible celestial object, mm-hmm. you know. Can you speak to that a bit? Yeah. Uh, again, the whole principle is indirect evidence so that you cannot see the thing that you want to characterize. It's not immediately evident to any of your sensors, but you can see that it's having an effect on a body that you can measure, whose movements you can trace. And that tells you something about the invisible body that must be influencing it. And that's very much what the invisible mass of the native poetic tradition, how it's manifesting itself. Uh, so we can't be 100% sure is the other thing. And I'm quite happy to live with that uncertainty, but many scholars aren't. Yeah, and I yeah. mean, I, I think one of the things that I've found in reading your book is how much you need to apply an interpretive and analytical mind to the materials. And so let with that happy thought, mm. let's get to the opening of Maxims 1. Okay. Uh, these are the first eight lines from a poem that scholars have titled Maxims 1. Uh, it's a very generic title, but it does the job because the poem is largely made up of these proverbs that are referred to as maxims. And it begins thus. Interrogate me with wise words. Don't leave your heart concealed or withhold your deepest truths. I won't reveal my secrets if you keep hid the power of the inmost thoughts of your heart. Discerning men should compare their careful words, first praising God, our Father, rightly, for he, in the beginning, bestowed on us our life and fleeting joys. Mere loans he will recall. And then a few lines later in the same passage. He grants us thought with sundry inner states and many languages. Many an island sustains all kinds of life. The measurer raised up these spacious lands, almighty God, for the human race and causes them to swarm with populations as differently behaved as they are numerous. Wise men with the wise should hold deliberation, one with another. Their spirits accord calm strife and teach peace always when malcontents have earlier stirred things up. Right. So what do we learn from this, from these two sections? I mean, they don't sound especially pagan to the untutored ear, but there are pagan elements. So explain Mm. what we're reading. Well, there are elements of native tradition very much on view here that is not wholly inconsistent with Christian teaching, but neither does it reflect it very literally. And that's where it really gets interesting. The beginning has to do with the reciprocity inherent in most wisdom traditions. And to be honest, that's a worldwide phenomenon. Most wisdom literatures all around the world, at some point or another, enjoin dialogue that you can't be wise on your own. You need someone else to exchange thoughts with, to exchange words with, and that's where it's in the spark, in that gap, that wisdom can emerge. Um, so it begins 
with reciprocity from the get-go, interrogate me. Uh, there's a speaker, and he's addressing another and insisting that that other question him. So he turns the agency right round from the very get-go. Um, and he says, don't leave your heart concealed no. or withhold your deepest trials. So it's a, it's a request for intimacy there absolutely, as well. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. And again... We cannot know. If I wanted to read this against the migration age background, you would have a culture that was negotiating tremendous difficulties, social difficulties, economic difficulties, political, a lot. You know, uh, most people were spending most of their time trying not to die, uh, to put it bluntly, in, in one sense, so that every encounter with another human being would be fraught, uh, unless they were you were on extremely intimate terms with them and you knew that you could trust them. Any other encounter, you'd have to be on your guard. And wisdom functions here as a way of leaping that gap and, you know, in one sense, maybe diffusing potentially ruinous encounters that could turn bloody uh, at a moment's notice. But, yeah, there is something about the hidden inwardness of the human psyche that is a source of both possibility and peril. There's an old English word that's really interesting in this context. To be, uh, it's, it's inwit, more or less. And if you possess inwit, you are an inwida. And what that means is potentially you are scheming so-and-so on the one hand, potentially a villain, but it means that you've got a secret interior that people outside you can't see. And we don't know what might emerge from that. Could be good, might be dangerous, and we don't know till we get there. So by eliciting thoughtful exchange, you know, the, the speaker here is beginning his wisdom discourse with expressing a desire to communicate and to and, understand. And the other thing that comes to my mind is that what is being asked of the other is... Uh, some kind of sharing of experience and so often you know wisdom is uh, dogma you know conventionally uh, it's uh, we can tell you this is this this is what wisdom is in it's codified and mm. I mean in Buddhism it's the wisdom of emptiness and there mm. are mm. hundreds of books that will tell you exactly what that is so I think it's interesting that the kind of wisdom that comes in this pre-Christian context is a wisdom of experience rather than uh, any formulas. Yeah, the, the, those are words I use quite a bit in my commentaries in this book, uh, existential and experiential. Th those are the dominant modes of the old English wisdom discourses. To be honest, it's true of the biblical wisdom discourses too. They do have some prescriptive passages, but they're not in keeping with either ancient Jewish theology or later Christian theology, not entirely. They don't seem to be articulating that, even though they don't say all that much that's incompatible, incompatible with it. Yeah, uh, It just comes from another place. Somewhere else. It that's doesn't exactly come right. from the codification. Mm -hmm. So he grants us thought with sundry inner states mm. and many languages. What would you say about this second stanza? This is a prime example of how you can probe this stuff for alien matter, if I can put it that way, the dark body radiation, if you like. Because 
the poet here is speaking about the profusion of human pop, uh, populations across the earth, human variety. At some point, I don't think it's in this passage, although it's implied elsewhere, he says explicitly that it's good that there's so many different languages because it means human beings have to learn to communicate and they can find ways of getting along because they have to surmount the language barriers that are there. There are as many languages as there are peoples, and that's a good thing. Now, that is not patristic theology, because the variety of human languages in Jewish and Christian thought arises from the Tower of Babel, where human impertinence sought to raise a tower to heaven, and God punished that by confusing their tongues. And so the variety of human Languages is not a good thing. It's actually a, you know, it's a, a punishment, a judgment by God on human pretension. But for the wisdom tradition, it's an opportunity. So we can't quite say where that thought is coming from. It's, there's nothing, as you said before, there's nothing particularly pagan about it. But it's deliberately looking away from the off-the-shelf patristic or rabbinical reading of that question of linguistic variety. So that, that's a real interesting aspect of this passage. Yes, and I like wise men with the wise should hold deliberation one with another, their spirits accord, calm, strife, and teach peace always when malcontents have earlier stirred things up. And what do you think that refers to? Oh, well, um, partly this is a very common figure in Germanic literature broadly, Scandinavian literature in particular, uh, in the Eddas and the Sagas, there is a stock figure who appears in a number of them uh, who is the peacemaker, basically. It usually doesn't end well for him, <laughs> if I can put it that way. But he's a real resource for as long as he can stay on the job and alive uh, in that the natural tendencies of these cultures were centrifugal. Basically, in Germanic societies, as far as we can tell, this is a bit of a stereotype, but there's reason for it. You had a whole bunch of blokes, always armed, sitting around in mead halls, getting pissed to the gills, absolutely touchy about honor and insult. Um, there was going to be blood on the carpet sooner sooner or later, and these mead hall dust-ups happen all the time in, genera- in uh, Germanic literature. And the peacemaker, though, is he's like a control rod in a nuclear reactor. He can soak up the excess energies and keep it from getting out of hand. Uh, and it's a very valuable function, if perilous, uh, if I can put it that way. So that's that's part of what he's talking about. Okay, so we'll move on to the B section of Maxim's 1B. Uh, what would you like to say about this section? Um, this is a very short, punchy passage uh, that is more typical of the Maxim's poems as a whole. What I've read before is mainly introductory, and this is much more what they are like for uh, the long run of the poem. Uh, short, pithy statements that summarize different kinds of truths about the world and human experience in the world. They sometimes can look a bit odd to the human eye, but will or to the modern eye, but we'll, uh, we'll have a go here. I also thought this would be, it's a brief passage, and it would be a good one for me to recite the Old English. Yes, I think uh, it'd be so great that to hear, hear that. Yeah, that'd yeah. be lovely. Okay, so I'll read the Old English, and then I'll read my translation. And it goes like this. Forst shall frozen, fear wood do meltan, erda groan, 
Isbridjan, Waterhelm Wechan, Wundrum Lucan, Erdan Chidas, Anshel Inbindian, Forstis Fetra, Fela Merti God, Winter Shell Yewerpan, Weder Eftkuman, Sumor Swegle Hat, Sund Unstille, Deop Deada Wech, Dirna Bith Longest, Holen Shall. Inalid, Urva Yedalid, Derdis Mones, Dom Bithselast. And in modern English you can make that run like this. Frost will freeze, fire dissolve the wood, the earth must burgeon, ice will make a bridge, water wear a helmet, wondrously locking seeds in the ground, one shall loose. The fetters in the frost, almighty God. Winter will turn away, good weather in its wake. The summer-hot sky, the sea that knows no rest. The path of the dead is deep and longest hid. Holly is to be kindled, the legacy of the dead distributed. Renown is best. Which is amazing list of things, but mm-hmm. um, what what are they pointing to there? What 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 are they trying to say? All kinds of things they are. Um, what dominates this passage is process. This is wisdom utterances about how things change. Uh, I mentioned at the reading that scholars in the mid twentieth century and a bit before often took this passage to task for being a bit boneheaded. Why do we need a poem to tell us that frost freezes and fire consumes wood? You know, did they really need a mnemonic <laughs> for that? And of course, it's not about facts. And this touches on one of my main themes in the whole book, that whatever wisdom is, it's not information. Uh, it's not data that can be downloaded, uploaded, digitized in any way, shape, or form. It's an inward possession. And so what these lines are doing is demonstrating the wise onlookers' reception of the things of the world. And yeah, partly, yeah, these are basic things, but they are fundamental. They're at the heart of the physical world and our engagement with it. Again, if you've lived in England for any time, the fact that frost freezes is not just a meteorological fact. You know, it's something that colors your life for the whole long length of winter, especially before central heating. And the uh, and the fire dissolving the wood. Think of the subjective side of that. You know, what, while the while the frost is freezing everything outside, you've got your fire inside. You know, the human dimension of it is is just below the surface and part of the game here. Now it goes through seasonal variation, as I have said elsewhere, in fairly cheerful tones. You know, it's a, this happens, this happens, this happens. The orderly progression of the seasons. Summer follows winter. Uh, all good. And then suddenly you're brought to a screeching halt at the end with, um, you know, the path of the dead is deep and longest to it. Where did that come from? But then you you have to process it and you think, about, OK, that's another kind of process on a completely different level from water freezing or wood burning, but not unrelated. How is it related? And that's often what these wisdom poems do is to give you a kind of mosaic of not quite facts, but related truisms of experience that where the wisdom comes in is not in the factoids themselves, but in how they link 
and connect. And so here we get this strange observation of the path of the dead. You know, where did the dead go? Wouldn't we like to know kind of thing? It's a secret. But holly has to be kindled and the goods of the dead person have to be distributed. And again, this is pretty clearly talking about some kind of funeral observance. What kind? All right. The kindling of holly is is a bit of a giveaway here because that sounds like something native that we don't know of any church rituals that would involve kindling holly. We do know that holly was a very significant, you know, mythologically, religiously significant plant for a lot of different traditions. Druids who are not related to the Anglo-Saxons, but still it was a magical plant in all kinds of ways. So there's something going on here that is not official church business. We'll, we'll put it, we'll put it that way. But that rings true for this poet about what happens to the dead. Also the, um, what I call the pagan agnosis. The, the path of the dead is longest hidden. We don't know where they go. Now the church came in with a very well-defined line. We know exactly what happens to the dead, you know. Body goes into the earth, soul goes to a preliminary scene of judgment where it's assigned either to heaven or to hell based on how the person behaved while they were alive. Done. That's that's it. No ifs, ands, or buts on that. And see, this is veering away from strict orthodoxy here. Uh, and I think it's the call of the native poetic tradition that, that the poet cannot resist for yes. whatever reason. Yes, it, it's, uh, it's certainly... When you unpack it, mm-hmm. um, a legacy of of something other than Christianity, mm-hmm. and I think this the phrase "the renown is best." Mm. So that again refers to the heroic tradition. Absolutely, uh, all of these things get into big issues that I could go on and on about. I'll try and keep this right, uh, ba- basic, but the word for renown, fame, in Old English is dom. D O-M with a long O. It's the ancestor of modern English doom, actually. So among its many meanings, if you look it up in a dictionary, it has like 15 possible translations, depending on context. Uh, one of them is judgment. It comes ultimately from the verb daemon, that means to judge. I deem that you are a worthy warrior kind of thing. And dom is basically favorable judgment. It means the opinion of your contemporaries and of your culture that you have done well. And that's what the warrior culture lives for, basically, the acknowledgement of having done well. You can't ask for more than that. Of course, Christianity takes that over into the context of God's judgment so that the Christian warrior, you know, uh, metaphorically the monk often or the believer, has to contend with sinful tendencies of the world, like a hero might deal with monsters, in the hope of gaining God's favorable dom. So dom bifselis, and given that dom by itself often means good judgment, positive judgment, it's it, the poet's playing it both ways, because that could be the heroic sentiment that the heroic dom is best. Nobody would argue with that in Anglo-Saxon England on the one hand. But if the abbot came by and said, what you're writing about, son? Oh, see... Judgment is best. Oh, God's judgment. Fine. Carry on. Do, do what you're doing. It might be a safe page, yes. as I like to point out. Good. Yeah. Okay. Well, we're going to have to leave it there yeah. uh, for this first episode. I'm talking to Bob DiNapoli about his new book, Reading Old English Wisdom, The Fetters in the Frost. And we're going to read this this book over two programs 
So uh, thank you for coming in. My pleasure. And uh, we will continue the conversation um, next month. Okay, so my name is Di Cousins, and you have been listening to the Spoken Word Program. And we'll just go out with a little bit of harp music from Kath Connolly's CD, Journey, Celtic Harp Reflections. Thank you.